This is Glenn Healy. Hi, this is Braden Holpe. This is Daryl Sutter. Hi, this is Brian Burke. This is Jordan Tutu. This is Keith Morrison. This is Kelly Rudy. Hi, this is Scott Hartnell. Hey, everybody. My name is Steel Fleury. This is Tim McAuliffe of Sportsnet, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Monday, holiday Monday. And man, do we got a good one on store for you today. This is the White Buffalo. I've been trying to get uh, Cal on the podcast for two plus years. So it took some time. Finally got him. Excited for you guys to hear this one. Before we get to that, though, let's get to today's episode sponsors. Carly Kloss and Windsor Plywood, builders of the podcast studio table for everything wood. These are the guys. I keep talking about deck season. It is blowing by this summer. I mean, it is just August long, and maybe you're still working on some projects. These are the guys to go see when it comes to wood. Uh, all you got to do is just look at they did. It was a while back, cedar renovation, um, a cedar deck renovation in the Man, like, it looks sharp. Just go to their Instagram or Facebook page, see what they're cooking up, and I promise they're going to give you some ideas, and they're going to give you the best top-of-the-line wood and everything else products to use so that your projects look top-notch, right? Whether we're talking about mantles, decks, windows, doors, or sheds, give Windsor Plywood a call, 780-875-9663. Jen Gilbert and team for over 45 years since 1976, the dedicated realtors of Coldwell Banker Cityside Realty have served Lloydminster and the surrounding area. They offer star power, providing their clients with seven-day-a-week access because they know big life decisions are not made during office hours. That's Coldwell Banker Cityside Realty for everything real estate, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 780 875-3343. You got that house? I tell you what, why not uh, get Jill Fisher, the mortgage broker, involved? Now, obviously, her name says it all. She probably serves the areas of Lloydminster, Bonneville, Cold Lake, and Vermilion, and she's looking forward to working with you for all your mortgage needs. You go, do I need a mortgage broker? Chances are, if you're asking that question, you should look into it. Uh, just visit her at jfisher.ca or give her a call, 780-872-2914. I promise she'll clear up all your uh, questions when it comes to uh, your mortgage, all right? Clay Smiley, Profit River, their update on the new building, interior walls, vault under construction. Uh, they have custom walnut cabinetry and gun rack being built. It's exciting. They are moving into um, the old buckle here in town the old bar is turning into um profit river which is going to be super cool can't wait to get a tour of it they specialize in importing firearms from the united states of america so it doesn't matter where you are in canada you can utilize profit river and they make sure to take care of all that nasty paperwork that none of us want to deal with these guys take care of it all right and they get it shipped to you by mail courier or bus wherever you are just go to profitriver.com and check them out today they are the major retailer of firearms optics and accessories serving all of canada trophy gallery they are located downtown lloyd minster but they are canada supplier for glass and crystal awards so if you're a business owner anywhere in canada why not take a look at trophygallery.ca they got uh, top notch uh, awards that Clint engraves right on site, and they can they can get it to you anywhere you are. I always talk about the the travel mugs Clint did up for me, the SMP travel mugs. Man, they were sharp, and uh, well, I ran out of them, so I guess I'm gonna have to go bug Clint as well. They now, if you go on TrophyGallery.ca, they got all sizes, shapes, price ranges, um, and if you're a hockey fan, he's got tons of hockey memorabilia, tons of it signed, so that uh, you know. 
you can uh, dabble into your hobbies and uh, get some cool stuff to hang on the wall, all right? Go to trophygallery.ca and see what I mean. SMP billboard, uh, I talked to, I, I love to showcase Read and Write. They have been, well, all you got to do is come to the studio and see all the signage they've done. But uh, the billboard's out for the public to see. And if you're looking for some outdoor signage, why not give them a call? 306-825-5111. If you're looking for rental um uh, like a, an office space. Gartner Management is a Lloyd Minster based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs. Whether you're looking for small office or a 6,000 square foot commercial space, give Wade Gartner a call 780-808-5025. And if you're heading into any of these businesses, make sure you let them know you heard about them on the podcast, right? Let's get on to that T-Bar 1 tale of the tape. Originally from Frenchman Butte, Saskatchewan, he co-founded Northridge Canada Incorporated, founder of Gaslang Properties, chairman of the Edmonton Investors Group. He's been inducted in the Alberta Business Hall of Fame, awarded the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal, and named to the Order of Canada. Talking about Cal Nichols. So buckle up, here we go. This is Cal Nichols and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. So welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast today. I'm joined by Mr. Cal Nichols. So first off, uh, thanks for sitting down with me today. You're welcome. You know, I, uh, I've nicknamed you my white buffalo because this has taken some time and some effort. Nothing that, uh, um, uh, nothing that really put me down. I was, I was willing for the challenge and I'm very happy that I finally got you. That's an original. I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> Um, you know, two words I really want to dig into growing up, you know, you're a Paradise Hill boy um, with roots originally there. And then, of course, St. Wahlberg. Uh, one of the times we chatted, uh, we were playing St. Wahlberg and you told me to look in the rafters. So I got to see your number retired there. Um, so I'd love to, to hear some stories of growing up in Paradise Hill, St. Wahlberg, that type of thing. Um, two two uh, words or two uh, ideas that I got stuck around with your story was one, you had vision, and two, you're very community-orientated. And uh, I think your list of works really show that. So I, I really want to dig into some of that. Okay. But maybe we could start with uh, growing up in Paradise Hill. Um, you know, I assume it was a little different back back in the early 40s to early 50s. Right. Well, actually, I, w- I was born in Paradise Hill, but... In my uh, younger years, we actually lived in French, Frenchman Butte. And uh, when I was about, I don't know, thir- 13 years old, my dad uh, got transferred by Imperial Oil down to Paradise Hill, which was only 11 miles away. But growing up in, uh, in those days, we, uh, in the wintertime, I remember the, some, some winters the uh, snow would be so deep we didn't even have roads, so we, we had train service. Frenchman Butte was the end of the rail line, and we had uh, four kind of freight, semi-passenger trains a week, and one skunk, which was a passenger train, which was came up every Tuesday, went back to uh, North Battleford. So if we needed any uh, medical services, any emergencies, sometimes the only way you could get out of there was by train. But anyway, uh, you know, that's where I first uh, got involved in, uh, like every other kid, 
playing hockey and uh, there were so few people there that we had uh, some players were uh, very, very small and young, others bigger and older, so uh, it was a much di different looking uh, team photo than what you get today and everybody's basically same same size, same age. But anyway, we made it work and uh, we used to travel around to other small communities and uh, and play hockey in summertime. It was very similar with baseball. We'd go to all the uh, the ball tournaments in the immediate area. And then, you know, uh, after graduating out of uh, high school in Paradise Hill, I was uh, 19 years old and uh, I ended up getting into business right away in St. Walberg, which was another 13 miles further, um, basically east of Paradise Hill. And so that was uh, my uh, foray into business. And uh, I was not really legal age to to be able to sign in, so my dad had to do that for me because I wasn't 21 yet. So I got a very early start in business and uh, lots of good memories from that. Uh, I mean, you're basically starting from scratch, and uh, uh, you know you did you know you did what you had to do to survive and. I was uh, living with a family that owned a restaurant in St. Walberg, and they charged me uh, $55 a month for a room and board, and I ate off the menu. And I, st I lived with them for six years before I got married, and uh, that was kind of like my second family. So anyway, when I first started in the uh, bulk plant, in the Essel bulk plant in St. Walberg, I... Uh, <laughs> The drinking age then was 21, and I couldn't even go in the beer parlor and have a beer with my customers, so it uh, made me a little different than most of the business guys in town. But anyway, we uh, were able to work around that however we could. And uh, so any, anyway, that that led me to to get very involved in the community. You, This is what you do in a small town. You... You participate in everything. So at a very early age, I was elected to town council. I uh, was the president of the Chamber of Commerce for a session, belonged to the Elks and whatever other organizations are going on there. And then with the, uh, high, the, uh, the baseball team, I was one of, the only, one of the few guys who was even out of high school, so I was the playing manager of the team <laughs> and at, at 21 or 20, I guess I was 21 years old. And in, with the hockey team, same thing. And so I was the captain of the hockey team. And back in those days, we played mostly in the North Sask Alta League. And uh, so... Who was, you know, who, who was the teams uh, back then in the North Sask Alta that would have been the tough competition? Well, uh, Marwin... Uh, uh, Lloyd Minster had a team, uh, Lashburn, uh, goodness. Uh, you're, leaving, you're leaving me out here on a lurch. I'm assuming you're going to say the Hillmond All-Stars. The Hillmond had a team, that's correct. I was, I was curious, you know, people aren't privy to the phone calls we've obviously had, but when I first started this and first started uh, uh, trying to track you down, 
you mentioned a name, uh, Vern Priest, and playing against Vern. Um, I'm curious, uh, what do you do? You remember anything of the old Hillmond uh, Silverdome or playing uh, um, playing the All Stars? I guess back in in those days. Very well. Uh, uh, back then, uh, arenas were just being built in all these small towns in in Saskatchewan, and they were all being built uh, out of uh, wood with the fold-up ends on them. And uh, Paradise Hill had one built like that initially, and so, as did uh, Hillmond. And I always, when I tell people the story, I said we had a team in our league in a community of less than 50 people, and they had a closed-in uh, hockey arena, and that, to some people back then, was quite unbelievable. And, you know, that, that team was made up mostly of uh, farm kids, and uh, they were big, strong, tough as hell. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, it was it was always fun playing there, but it was it was uh, it was pretty physical, and uh, we uh, our team was usually younger kids and had to depend on speed to get away from everybody. So anyway, did many uh, many good him, uh, memories about Hillmont. <laughs> did uh, was Cal uh, a glove dropper? Did you have to? Dust off the knuckles a couple times? No, as a matter of fact, uh, I uh, I got the uh, the trophy for the most gentlemanly player in the league one year, <laughs> and I had zero penalty minutes. So <laughs> that tells you a little bit how I played the game. Was it uh, you know into I don't know. This, well, I played. Nobody wanted the lady Bing. Did you? Did were you proud of it, or was it back then where everybody kind of wanted? You wanted to get a few more penalty minutes the next time around, so you didn't get awarded. Well, that was just my nature. I uh, I uh, I wanted to be out there for fun, and uh, uh, there were a uh, number of people. I remember some of the some of the dads and the people in Hillmont. They used to uh, kind of they'd, they'd rib us a little bit. They said, "You and Vern Priest are the smilingest hockey players in the." in the league <laughs> we were out there to have fun and uh, and we did so you've had a, a love for hockey then i would assume right from the very early days well uh back then you know you didn't have a lot of choices you, we had an outdoor rink to start with and uh and uh, and baseball and there were no in we never had any gymnasiums and there weren't a lot of in, indoor options so you know, when, uh, during the course of a year, that was basically it. You either did those or you didn't do anything else. Curling was a part of it, and I did that in high school, but a uh, little bit of volleyball. But for the most part, it was hockey and baseball. When you talk about being a, a young uh, guy in business, you were 19 and, and running a SO Bulk station, is right. that correct? That's right. I assume uh, that must have been an interesting few years, uh, learning the ropes for one, but two, being being 19, uh, I know the times are changed, so uh, definitely you would have been a little uh, more mature than some of the 19-year-olds I know these days, um, but in saying that, you're still 19 and green, I assume there must have been, at the very beginning, um, a steep learning curve, maybe? Well, I knew I knew the business having grown up in it, so I... I knew the products, I knew the bookkeeping procedure even before that. But, you know, I got to really think about a lot of that because uh, this is getting close to 60 years ago. 
and uh, you know, uh, I had eighty percent of the business we did was on credit, and uh, much of which and you just delivered product to uh, farmers or did heating oil tanks, and there was nobody around to even sign a, a an invoice or a packing slip, so. Everything was truly on a merit uh, trust business. And sometimes you had to make the tough decisions whether you're going to continue to give certain people credit because of slow pay or whatever. And many times back then, uh, some farmers really depended on credit for uh, cash management. And they really only had about two uh, parts of the year that they had money to pay their bills. So. Sometimes it got stretched, and uh, you used to have to think about how am I going to make this work and uh, be able to get to the next uh, to the next year, next season. So, you know that that was uh, a, you talk about a learning curve. Uh, talk, you know, dealing with middle aged in some cases older farmers and and having to be a little bit rigid with uh, giving them credit. But, you know, one thing about farmers, and particularly back then, they really never let you down. And many of them from time to time were short of cash when they needed to pay their debts or their bills. And I took in, uh, on trade, I've taken in cattle, pigs, hay bales, fence posts, but, you know, never did they uh, not try to pay you one way or another. So, uh, so I got lots of great memories of doing all those things. What, uh, what brings you to Edmonton? What, what, uh, why the change? You're a small town business owner, grew up in the area, become uh, successful. Uh, you're playing senior hockey. Um, you you're a counselor, like you're, you're ingrained now in St. Wahlberg. I mean, if there was an opportunity for you to work in the community, uh, I feel like you took it and you ran with it. Right. What, what gives you the jump to want to move to the big city back then? Well, you know, uh, you, 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 at different times you look at life and you say, uh, what do I want out of it? And, uh, do I want to spend the rest of my life in a small town? And as much fun as it was in the great relationships I had, because you knew everybody in town, I got a little concerned that, you know, the the social, socializing side of it uh, could lead you down a, a path that, uh, you know, a rut that you may not want to get into. So, you know, by the time I was finished there, I'd, I'd gotten married, and uh, I, I came over to... Alberta and BC quite a bit, and like everybody else did. And I, I, I observed that there, there was just seemed like more prosperity in, uh, particularly in Alberta at the time. And so uh, I made the decision to, uh, you know, to move over here. And actually, when I, when I first got here, my dad and I. We'd bought a hotel in a small town north of the city here. And uh, before the deal closed, he passed away suddenly at a very young age, 51. But I carried on, and uh, and I uh, saw the deal through. 
But I had to go back and uh, spend a lot of time in Paradise Hill cleaning up his business, uh, collecting all the outstanding bills and settling stuff. And my mother was still there, left alone. So uh, I got I had a, a, a person from Paradise Hill, actually a farmer, that had been around the hotel business quite a bit. And he offered to go up and help run the place while I was getting started. So when I got things sort of, you know, settled and uh, put to bed, I kind of found myself looking for something to do. And my, my wife really didn't want to move out to that small town, live in a hotel. So we just had a, our first, uh, first baby, our son. And uh, so I, we rented a place in Edmonton, and I went, I went back to Imperial Oil because it was their region office here in Edmonton just sort of fishing around a little bit and asking if they had anything available in the Edmonton area that uh, an agency or whatever. Turned out they did not have that sort of a, of a, uh, uh, of an opportunity at the time. But the senior management there asked me if I wanted to come work for them as a salaried employee. And at the time they were only hiring uh, MBAs and BCOMs, and I had not been to university. But they wanted to try taking somebody that had field experience in, uh, in the trenches and go out and be an agent supervisor. So, so I agreed to do that while still owning the hotel. So I worked as a salaried employee. My territory was north and east of Edmonton, all the way up to McMurray and Uranium City, Coal Lake. And <clears throat> at, on the weekends, I would run out to the hotel. It was about 50, 60 miles away, and I'd tap beer and uh, do payrolls and stuff like that. Anyway, that only lasted about a year and a half, and then they, uh, Imperial, uh, uh, wanted to bring me in and put me on a... Uh, on a, a special project team, we're uh, looking at all the uh, the processes and ways of uh, centralization because Saskatchewan alone had something like 300 bulk plants, and they could see consolidation was going to be uh, something of the future. So myself and two other guys were on the study team, and that meant a number of trips down to Toronto and elsewhere, uh, trying to get as much uh, information and uh, accumulate uh, whatever we could. Spent time over at the university uh, here. There had been a lot of work done on rural sociology. And uh, so anyway, I, I spent uh, uh, by this time about three years as a salaried employee. And then all of a sudden the, uh, the bulk plant, the Esselbach plant in Edmonton became available, and they asked me if I wanted to go back into business again. So I, I jumped at the chance. In the meantime, I had sold off the hotel. I was kind of out of that. And away I went in the, uh, the bulk petroleum business again. And that, at the time, Edmonton was really busy, and there was a lot of construction going on. And that bulk plant got to be probably the biggest in Canada at that time. So... I did that for 10 years, and at that point I was 
like still not 40 years old. And I decided it was time to make a, a change again, so I started getting into properties and building some commercial buildings, not unlike the one you're at, at this location. And uh, so off doing that, and had a little stint in the construction heavy equipment business with another guy. Then uh, a, guy, a couple of guys I met while working at Esso. Uh, this was in 1984. Uh, they they uh, came and asked if I was interested in yet another opportunity. And at, at that time, there was obviously going to be a change in uh, government. And uh, the incoming conservatives had made it one of their election promises to privatize the marketing of oil and gas. And uh, these guys, one of them had worked at the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission and was very uh, uh, involved in negotiation of crude with the producers and the refiners. But it was all, up to then, it had all been dealt, uh, handled by the, the government or the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission. So away we went on another venture and uh, that company, we ended up moving it to uh, very quickly to Calgary because that's where all the decisions were made. And it it grew substantially, and eventually I I got bought out of that, and it it became uh, a company that was uh, purchased by uh, TransCanada Pipelines. So uh, you're talking about Northbridge. Northridge. Or yeah, Northridge, yes, sorry. Which was my wife's maiden name is actually where the name came from. Northridge. Northridge, yeah. Really? Yeah, right. So. Um, you've just given me like 15 years of life. I, gotta, I, I didn't realize you owned a hotel. Did you enjoy the hotel business? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, thinking that buying beer wholesale was a good idea didn't turn out that way. <laughs> it was... Uh, it was uh, it was just another one of those experiences I had. Glad I did it, but uh, you know, unless you get really big in the business, uh, it's uh, it's a lot of hard work and uh, terrible hours. And uh, what was so. maybe one of the biggest surprises about owning a hotel that you didn't realize was on the uh, the summary when you were when you were buying into it? Well, as as in most other uh, small businesses, if you weren't there to guard the till, that was that was high risk because you had to hire people. I'm not saying that, that anybody did anything maliciously, but people are never as careful with other with your money yeah, as, or as they are their right. own. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, and the other thing was that uh, it's one thing to go go into a hotel beer parlor to for in your own enjoyment and have a few cold ones, but when you're there serving it and dealing with people all the time, uh, people not always are what you uh, what they seem to be, and uh, so you had to be a bit of everything, a peacemaker, and uh, you know, and I just I just didn't want to spend my life doing that. So anyway, it was just another one of the experiences along the way. 
You know, one of the things that becomes quite evident as I sit here and chat to you is uh, you're a doer. You're not a guy who, uh, um, <laughs> you're working a full-time job and then on the weekends you're running a hotel and everything else while you're working. You're not a guy who sits around and doesn't do things. Um, here we are on a Friday, Cal. Uh, I would assume that you would be gone for the weekend to the lake, golfing. I could think of a million things you could be doing. And um, just a, a little insight to the listener or the watcher. You know, I, I show up here and I go, okay, well, how, how long do I got you for? Because this is going to make everything I talk about either condensed or we can just free flow. And you go, as long as you want. <laughs> I'm going, or no, until the job's done. I'm yeah. like, okay. Yeah. Right? Like, that's pretty cool on a Friday. I just assumed, uh, you know, life would have you go in different directions. Well, if you're going to uh, succeed in, in business, you have to make yourself available uh, uh, anytime, any place for as long as people want because uh, you're selling yourself and that's what they're buying into is somebody that that is, cares about them and wants to give them service. And uh, so sometimes you stay too long, but uh, anyway, I, I, I just enjoy it. So, uh, you know, always been that way. And uh, uh, by doing that, you, you just meet a lot of fine people in life. And, you know, so I don't regret any of that. After Northridge, you sell or you build this company then you get bought out. Is the, the world your like? Can you go any direction you want at this well, point? Well, I did one other thing. While uh, we were uh, while we were running Northridge, I uh, I was uh, one partner that had put a bit of capital together. So, and already had restarted a gasoline chain called Gasland on my own, and. Uh, started buying properties and, and building gas bars, just like the one you see out here. And uh, the Northridge guys wanted, they encouraged me to carry on and do that on my own as a separate uh, sister company because the vision was at the time we were gonna, we were going to do deals with uh, producers to take their oil, do processing deals with refineries, put it through retail gas bars and in effect you could tell producers you can buy your own stuff back through us. And so anyway, when, when, I, when I sold my share out in Northridge, I kept building Gasland. And so that got to be a, a company of about 50 locations at its peak. And uh, so that meant, that brought me into the properties business because uh, we, some many places we just leased property to build facilities on, but many of them we bought, we purchased. Sometimes the land that was available was more than you needed, so that led to to building on some cases some uh, other other uh, businesses, restaurants. I had a couple of liquor liquor stores and uh, you know a few other things. So uh, after Northridge. Uh, I just kept on uh, building uh, Gasland. Then in 1996, I sold the surface assets of uh, Gasland to Husky, but I kept all the properties and buildings. And to this day, that's our business. We, I'm, I've been liquidating some of them now because it's 
no time to do that. And uh, but anyway, uh, one of the one of the bigger entities I've had over all this time is the commercial properties business. I'm curious. You know, you start out with with the one um, gas location in St. Walberg, and then you talk about at the peak of gas line, you had 50. What was, like, what was the difference from run, managing one store, one location, to having that many? Well, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day, so you just have to decide where you're going to spend your time. So your role changes. And, and the, back then it was bulk plants, so that meant driving trucks and doing books and and where where this led to in gas in Gasland was more of a retail, so it was a, it was a, a bit different business. So we uh, we had to hire operators, and we set up a lot of guys in their own business to run these uh, food stores, car washes, or whatever they were. And so you know that would that meant you had to hire a lot of people to help you manage this. So yeah, just like anything else, you. Uh, you have to uh, decide how to spend your own time, who you're going to bring on board to do books, accounting, marketing. And uh, so life is just one great big education. I mean, you never you never quit learning. Uh, you just you make a lot of mistakes, some good decisions. You just hope that you make more good ones than bad ones. And uh, uh, you know, there's always the I woulda, shoulda, coulda goes on in your mind, and it does to this day. But uh, anyway. Uh, what's, I, what's, what's one of the best, I mean, maybe not at the time, but what's one of the mistakes that taught you the most? You know, you, you talk about good decisions, but mistakes or, um, you know, oversights when you, you didn't fully understand maybe the situation or, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of leading you somewhere. I'm just curious. You know, you're you're a man who's who's <laughs> well hotels. You mentioned restaurants, liquor stores, uh, real estate, and then of course all the the different locations with the the bulk fuel. Um, there's going to be mistakes made. Nobody's perfect. I'm curious if there was a mistake you made and you went, oh, don't do that again. Well, uh, it's tricky business when you're uh, when you're buying locations to build a facility. And by the time I was doing this, they're pretty picked over. The majors you usually had first kick at it because whoever owned it was was more inclined to deal with more financial strength. And uh, so sometimes you get left with leftovers. And uh, we, we invested in equipment and uh, tanks and pumps and canopies and so on. In a lot of places, it just didn't work, and we uh, yet you, you had, and in many cases, you had long-term leases you had to live out, and and, and you had to make the decision: Do I live with this uh, location that is a non-producer, or do I uh, tear it down and uh, just walk away from it? And uh, had to do that many, many times because uh, you you just nobody can pick winners all the time, and uh, like I said, you just. You hope that you get more good ones than bad ones, and that's kind of the way it worked. Now, when you're talking these 50 locations, I'm curious, like, are you talking uh, semis pulling in and fueling up and cars, or are you talking you're distributing? Well, 
uh, or both? Both. We uh, we had uh, we uh, uh, we had uh, big trucks on the road, and I I had uh, some larger larger commercial accounts. We had a, a deal with Suncor. I was uh, uh, marketing their what was called the kerosene stream, which is the P minus fifty diesel fuel, and uh, so that was that was part of the mix. But most of the fifty were places where cars and trucks filled up, and in many cases they were dealer owned. So all we did was we were just a supplier. We provided the branding for them and uh, and the dependable supply. So I, I'm I'm I love the back. Like uh, I assume you had to go scout these locations. Did you make multiple trips to just kind of get a feel for the spot, or did you just pull up and go, yeah, that's a good spot? No. Well, you did the best you could. You, uh, and, and I wasn't really a retail guy. I was a, I was a bulk distributor, and, uh, and the retailing side of it just kind of happened. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of times you made uh, choices that if you had to do it over again, you wouldn't do it. Just because of the whole game is about location and access, and if you don't have that right, uh, they're harder to make work. And and you know, I, uh, I it, it's like calling the herd. The ones that don't work, you have to get rid of. And and I did I did sort of grind that down to maybe twenty five or thirty of the best locations and uh, lived with that. Did. Uh while you're in all your business endeavors, you know, I've talked to a bunch of different successful guys that uh, have, have gone on to have just as big a business uh, endeavors as yourself. Did you have mentors or other business uh, partners that you leaned on or even guys from the industry that uh, um, taught you some things along the way? Well, you you try and keep an open mind to uh, any, you know, any suggestion or uh anybody that uh, can make you better at what you do and of course there's in in large corporations like Esso, there's these are uh, highly educated professional people and just hanging around them you if you're paying attention you just can't help but learn and but you know then there's another side to this too uh I was more of a of a of a trench guy, a field guy. So I knew a lot about uh, how to deal with construction guys, uh, backhoe operators and farmers and acreage guys than any, anybody in the system because they'd never done any of this stuff. They were, they were educa- educated guys that uh, grew up in the ranks. And that's why they hired me at the time to... Uh, yeah, you had so skills we learned, that so we translated learned, so, very well. So we learned from each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, I, I um, you know, in the beginning, we we were talking about how you, you know, in Saint Walberg when you first moved there, you pretty much ingrained yourself in the community. Yeah, you, you know, you're saying any club, well, you joined it. I was on the city council. I was playing hockey. I was playing ball. I, you were the, <laughs> you were the Reg Dunlop of the hockey, or well, the ball team. And I, I was just curious, you know, when you come to Edmonton. Edmonton is a big step from a St. Walberg, um, a Paradise Hill, the little rural farming communities. It's it's even back then would have been the giant city. Um, how did you find your way in the beginning to uh, 
ingrain yourself in this community? Well, first of all, doing what I did in St. Walbert was a huge education. And I, there's many, many things I learned there that I brought to the city. And, you know, eventually we'll start talking about uh, Oilers and my involvement. But many of the skills and principles that I had to use here, I learned definitely out there. And the one that I, I talk about the most is uh, reciprocity. And in a small community, if you don't uh, uh, back up and work hard for the community, join in everything, then the tendency for the people that buy your goods and services are not gonna use you, they're gonna go somewhere else. So that was a, a, a big thing with me that you know, if uh, if I expect people to support me, I gotta help them, and it's a two-way street. And uh, you you cannot learn that skill in the city as well as you can in a small town, because there's no place to run and hide. You uh, you ha you're accountable, and everybody's watching every step. Everybody knows you, know everything about you, and you know. There, it's great because if you uh, if you get carried away with yourself, they're pretty quick to beat you down, and <laughs> and if you are too if you get down, and they're the first ones there to pick you up, and uh, you know you you don't see that the same way in the city, and uh, I you know those are those are just the great memories I have of uh, the relationships, and the way you you had to fit into the community. So all that changed was when I moved to Edmonton, the community was just a whole bunch bigger. But behavior was a little different. And, uh, you know, some of those skills that I learned back then worked very well for me. And uh, reciprocity. Reciprocity. Please, I'm, I'm struggling with the okay. word. You but, help me, I help no, you. No, 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 sorry, pronouncing the word. I get the word. I, I was trying to spit yeah. it out. That was your, your big one you leaned on then um, for what's going to make you succeed right so uh, you know let's let's go uh, what what happened uh, after I sold the retail uh, uh, assets to Husky which then made us just a a, uh, a commercial properties company and so I had I had a little bit more time on my hands, and uh, and uh, some people would say that's dangerous. <laughs> so uh, it was about that time that it was 1996, and of course I'd been a season ticket holder with the Oilers back to well to the very beginning, my WHA days, and uh, I. Uh, you know, we always had tickets, and we had a Sky Suite in the Northlands. And uh, in 1996, the team off the ice was definitely struggling. You could you could just see it. Uh, there was a lot of games. There, the building was only half full. And uh, I remember the third round of the playoffs, even in 1987, the third Stanley Cup against Winnipeg. I remember 13,000 people in the building. That was it for the third-round playoff game. So you could see... It wasn't It wasn't jarred. It wasn't full. No, no. And uh, so 
you know, anybody that, you know, has sort of a business acumen, you you look at it and you know there's there's issues coming. And and there was, and they became very public. And uh, so uh, I got, I don't, I don't know if you want me to go there now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I'm so, following along where you lead, good sir. Oh, okay, so in... Uh, 1996, while I was in the process of selling out these retail assets, I got invited down to the, the Mayfair Club, actually, to a gathering of business people that were going down to listen to Oilers ma ownership and management who had just got back from a league meeting. And the league had recognized that the Canadian teams, the smaller markets, were were struggling and they were going to need help. So they came up with a, a program called the Canadian Currency Assistance Program to kind of, because at that time our dollar was down around 70 cents or less at times. And they were, and the wages, the players were all paid in US dollars. And uh, uh, so the league agreed to. Uh, put up $6 million for three Canadian teams, Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver, to try and uh, get them, you know, stabilized and a little bit more on their feet. So this was being presented to, I would say that day there was about 35, 40 business guys. And I got invited by, actually, as it turns out, he was in the construction business, a very young guy at the time, who uh, James Cumming, who is our uh, uh, member of parliament, uh, conservative for Edmonton Center. So he just said, hey, I'm going to this meeting. You might be interested in coming along. So, so I went with him. And so the way it was presented to, to that group was that the $6 million was assumed by the group that, to be for each team, but as it turned out, after a period of time that it turned out to be split between the three teams. So it wasn't as big a windfall as the people in the community thought it was going to be that were, that were being asked to pitch in and help uh, with the marketing of tickets because to qualify for that, they had to sell 13,000 season tickets, all their dasher boards, and 90% of the suites, some such thing. And that was the only way they would qualify. So they were asking people in the community to help them to uh, get a campaign going to, uh, you know, to reach those goals. And so I, uh, you know, they, somebody had been picked to lead this. He was a retired uh, chartered accountant in town, in the city. And they were sort of splitting people up. Uh, if you were a car dealer, they said you look after car dealers. If you were uh, uh, in the hotel business, you look after hotel guys. Go out and actually try sell season tickets or other product to them. And I, I agreed to go and, and pitch in and help out. And they said, and you'd be in charge of uh, calling on people in the gasoline service station business. Well, I gave this quite a lot of thought and I said uh, I don't like the way 
this is sort of working because if somebody in the car business was out trying to sell tickets to other car dealers, he's not likely to be as amenable to buying because of him. But if somebody, some customer of his came along and asked him to do the same thing, it was a different reaction. So we were sort of set up in different teams and so I started to put our, our group together and it was mostly uh, friends in business, neighbors, guys I did business with. And what we did was we, uh, we started calling on our suppliers mostly to pitch in and help out, you know, to buy season tickets for other product. And when we would go to the back to the bigger group on a weekly or whatever period of time, whatever basis it was, uh, I was coming back with the most signed uh, commitments to, to buy season tickets. And this grew and grew. And then uh, finally I was asked if I would become the chairman of the, of the, uh, the Friends of the Oilers, uh, you know, the the whole group, yeah. So, so I did that anyway. To make a long story short, uh, I, uh, you know, we got to the fifteen thousand, and you know, the Oilers got their uh, their seat cap money, and uh, you know, I thought that was the end of it for me. But anyway, back to the reciprocity. Uh, what, what I actually taught the rest of the group that are out trying to do the same thing was you don't go to anybody in your profession or your business, uh, uh, whatever you're in, you go to your accountant, your lawyer, your, the people that, and, and that, that depend on you, uh, that build signs for you, that uh, supply you with const you know, construction stuff. And we all, in the small mini-group we had, that was what we were doing. We were, we were going to people that we had some influence over. And, you know, that, and so that's, that's how we, we grew it from 6,500 6, season tickets to 13,000. Now, this mini-group you talk about, is this the shrewd 11 that I, I read about, yeah, or does uh, that come later? We, we were called, we... Uh, seats? Seats, yeah. Uh, save Edmonton, acquire tickets soon, or, or something. True like to eleven aggressive ticket salesmen. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. So. I I assume you were, you know, if we were in military groups, you were the elite of the elite, sent in uh, to get the job done. Yeah, the combat group. <laughs> but you know what? You know, I was saying this on the drive up to a friend of mine. I was, you know, about what you, what's so interesting about you, Cal, is uh, A, you've been extremely successful at business. I don't think anyone will argue that. And then you quietly, or maybe loudly, I don't know, right? Like, uh, this is, you know, you you talk uh, about the Oilers 96, and then again, pretty much the year after with the, uh, uh, Pocklington, uh, trying to sell them to the States and everything that came with that. And I would love to hear about it is everybody talks about the glory years, the Stanley cup years, the winning, um, that's what all gets talked about as a kid. And it's something, you know, we just went through COVID year, right? 
and the fear that came with it and still out there, you know, lots of people we were talking earlier, don't want to get too close to people, personal spaces, germs, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the thing I think is like that fear specifically for kids sticks with them. And one of the fears I had as a young kid, I would have been uh, 11 or 12 when the save the Oilers um, signs came out, the SOS or stay Oilers stay, I guess. And, and, I remember the real fear of thinking our team was going somewhere else. And to find out that the guy who grew up across the river, uh, you know, and it was many, many moons ago, but to understand that there was a good healthy chunk of my community. I mean, I I consider that area one community, but uh, of a community, I guess, right beside us. And then men from Lloyd Minster as well, business owners from there that stepped up when you went and asked, I assume, Right. Uh, to step up and not only um, in the beginning do a ticket sales run, but then eventually buy them is wild and a story that needs to be uh, captured. Well, back back again to reciprocity. Uh, you know, we'd spend hours and hours and days going over lists of existing season ticket holders. There's somebody that has two, can they buy four? And we wanted... Uh, the, the general public and fans that couldn't even afford to buy product to know who is there helping out. We actually created a catalog, so to speak, a directory, I'll call it, of people that actually were buying season tickets so that day-to-day people fans, knew. kids, didn't matter who, if they were out on the street buying something, they could look in there, what companies are helping my favorite hockey team. And uh, this led us down to some roads that got a little bit uh, uh, bumpy at times. We found that there were companies like McDonald's, Save On Foods, uh, at the time Canadian Western Airlines, had no tickets. And they were doing million, tens of millions of dollars of business in this community and not supporting it. So I went public with that. And uh, I'll tell you, it ruffled some feathers and uh, uh, there was... Uh, but you know, uh, most of them did eventually step up and they they got it. But what it was was visibly a public uh, display of if I don't help out, uh, I can be I can be tracked. I can be uh, uh, so if if you believe so strongly in our hockey team, then the, if you're if all you do is you go to a restaurant or a grocery store or buy a beer, go to the ones that help in your favorite hockey team. And and I, and I and I go right back to what I learned in Paradise Hill and St. Wahlberg, is that you you got to support each other. Because if you don't, that person's no good to you. He's, he's not going to make it. So uh, that whole principle, I just applied it to a huge market, but, this, but the same idea occurred. I kind of know what is it. What is it about the Edmonton Oilers that was meant so? You know, there had to have been I don't know hundreds of businessmen in in, in Edmonton at the time, thousands probably, uh, and maybe there was a bunch more stepping up. I know there would be with and around you a, a group of them. I don't want to just single you out, but I'm curious. What is it about it, the Edmonton Oilers that gave you so much drive to be like? You know what? We're not losing them. Because honestly, when I read the stories, it wasn't like it was just like, hey, let's just go do this. It'll be nice and easy. And, and boop, 
and we got an Oilers hockey club. Like to me, when I read the stories, I go like, this was this was an undertaking. Well, <clears throat> you have to <clears throat> excuse me. You have to you have to look back at uh, the the history, and you know, I guess it all started first. We got the WHA team, then got entry into the NHL, then Gretzky, and I mean, you could just tell this this was this was a big this was a big deal, and this put us in the big league. You know, we're we were now competing with the New Yorks and Chicagos and Torontos of, of the world for one of the biggest prizes there is, sport prizes there is out there. And we had gone through, we, we had won four Stanley Cups here. And, you know, cities, at that time, the players were, were more out there. And so the public season ticket holders got a chance to be around them a little bit more get to know them socially in some cases. But we, we had uh, a commercial relationship with Glenn Anderson. We hired him for a few years while he was, uh, this started in about 1987, I guess it was, to do endorsement work for us. And so we spent a lot of time together, traveled to grand openings all around the country, uh, customer appreciation days. So we be we became very close and that sort of allowed me uh, at times to become mixing around with some of the other players at that time. Most of them now are uh, Hall of Famers, but uh, so I, you know, I was one of, you know, and there were others around as well that got to be very close to the team in a way. I mean, I, I never, I didn't go to dressing rooms or anything. I, I mean, it was more just to me, it was uh, the social side of it and, uh, so yeah, yeah, I guess that's how you get drawn into it. And it's 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 really uh, interesting, you know, to me. Um, once again, I go back because I remember the relief of that press conference of when you guys announced that the Oilers are staying, and because there was a lot of, well, I, I, you're the guy on the ground floor seeing all the turmoil, and um, right. you know, like how close did it come to them being? The Houston Oilers, or whatever they were going to call them. Well, <clears throat> what uh, what happened after the ticket drive was I that was in uh, 1996, and uh, moving forward in '97, I just sensed that there was trouble in with the with the team and its uh, sustainability, as we knew it. And uh, I, uh, you know, eventually it, it, it became very public and the ATB had, had called on their security and that meant the, the Oilers were going to be up for sale. What, what, was, what also had happened in 1994, uh, Peter Pocklington had made a deal with the city to put put public money into an upgrade in the uh, in Northlands to add put sky suites in and and lounge tables and and a lot of other things and to do that they created something called the 1994 Edmonton Location Agreement, which basically said uh, bef 
if if the team ever got into trouble or uh, to stabilize, to make sure there was stability here, before the owner could sell the team, uh, he had to offer it to local buyer first. So they pegged the price at 70 million U.S., which was at the time about 100 million Canadian. And so uh, when when the ATB called on their security, uh, they started looking around for buyers, and if none could be found, that meant it was going to move somewhere else. And so at that at that time, I started to think, how how can we come together as a community and stop stop this from happening? How do we how do we save this thing? So I. Uh, uh, started again. I was looking around, like who who can help, and I I got introduced to the guy that had been the CFO going right back to the beginning of the Oilers, and he he had since moved on. But I spent time with him, and I and he was able to bring up all the standard NHL formats, the financials, revenues, expense lines, and so on. So my learning curve went up a whole lot uh, with him. And, you know, at the time I didn't have a lot of personal wealth to put into this, but, into this, but I knew there, was, there were people around town that probably could step up. But I also quickly became aware that was, this was a different crowd than the people we were trying to sell season tickets to. In some cases, the same ones, but for the most part, it was, uh, it was a different group. And so I, I just started thinking through, if we brought enough people in together, could we raise enough money to meet the terms and conditions of the, uh, of the uh, uh, Edmonton Location Agreement? And it became clear to me that, that in order to have some operating capital, we were going to have to raise about $110 million. So uh, I started meeting people, got introduced to people, I'm, some I heard of, didn't really know, others I didn't know, and uh, came up with a soft, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a letter, it was a form of, of commitment. Not, it wasn't a legal document, it wasn't binding, but if you'd put you know, and I started out by trying to sell units of a million dollars a piece. And it takes a lot of millions to get to 110. And it was very slow going. And then, you know, I I got to know some of the guys better and they agreed to put in more. And then I came up with the idea, if you put in five million, you could be automatically a director on the board of this uh, group that... Uh, that we were putting together. And, uh, you know, just kept chipping away, chipping away. And uh, I, uh, I know you're going to ask about the Lloydminster group. I, I think around Christmas time, or around by the end, yeah, somewhere around Christmas time, we probably only had commitments for about, I mean, about 25 million soft commitments and that was made up of uh, I'm gonna say I'll say 15 people maybe or 15 to 20 but we were we were in a bit of a stall 
And, uh, you know, uh, through, during this time, I became known to, to uh, the NHL, Bettman and his people. And they were trying to do what they could do to help us on and encourage people to, to get involved if they could. But uh, they knew we were in a stall, and they knew that, you know, something had to happen here. Like it's either, uh, it's either you're either going to make it work, or we have to move on. Lo look at other alternatives. So I remember, like it was yesterday, uh, I was introduced to Larry McKelkey and his accountant. Bruce Panic, on January 5th at the Petroleum Club. And I had sort of a standard pro forma for this limited partnership to sell shares. So I went through it with Larry and uh, Bruce. And uh, uh, they were just in the process of selling their company in Lloydminster, BMW Monarch. <clears throat> so... Larry and Bruce, uh, they left, and, uh, you know, as usual, you never know what the per person's thinking, but uh, pretty soon I got the feedback that, uh, that Larry was going to invest, and he was going to encourage some of his other junior partners and other contacts in the oil patch that he had to also get involved. To me, that was a turning point of making this happen or not. Because, uh, you know, the, there was the Lloyd group in themselves, but they also came, introduced us to five or six different oil patchers, oil field suppliers back in Edmonton. And this, this, this gave us the boost we need to, to get closer to the, what we ended up trying to do was raise 60 million of cash and borrow the rest. I'll get into the borrowing story in a minute. But we had to chip away, chip away. And we were having trouble getting across that line because we'd, we'd get 40-something, we'd add somebody else. We'd get to f the low 50s, and and the, the league was running out of patience a little bit. So Gary Bettman, through his basketball contacts, knew all the NBA owners. And so he personally had dealt with and knew Les Alexander in uh, Houston. But, and, and so definitely he was an interested party because uh, he had the arena and had the basketball team. And lo and behold, there was a second group in Houston that were an opposing party to Alexander and they kind of got in. So we, we really had two Houston groups, but the real serious one was Alexander. And anyway, uh, we were finally given a deadline. We, you know, we, we had 45 days after, you know, the writ had been dropped, to get there or not. And uh, so then, then the heat was on. We, we really had to scramble. And other guy, some guys, upped their commitment a little bit and. But along the way, to make this work, we knew we had to borrow money from banks. So through people I knew at the time in the banking uh, in industry, uh, they also had a willingness to help out in their own way. And back then, whether it was an investor putting money in 
the limited partnership, or the banks, they almost looked at it, it was such a high risk that I might lose it all. So it better be an amount of money I can afford to lose right off or do whatever. And so at one point, I was able to pull together a representative of all the major banks and the B banks, ATB, uh, Credit Union, uh, Canadian Western, called those B banks because of their size, and, and the five A banks. And the A banks sort of stepped up and said, if we each put in $10 million, and the three B banks put in 10 amongst them, or collectively, that'll give us the, get you the 50 million you need. Well, as it turned out, uh, Scotiabank wouldn't participate because in the end they wanted to do it all on their own, which the other banks were very happy about that, kind of let them out of their commitments and all the politics that has to go on within their own system to be able to pull this off. So that put the banking thing kind of off to the side. We, If we could raise the 60 million, they were prepared to put up 50 because their 50 would be first secured and they would be the safest anyway. So they didn't really see all that much risk there. But that gave them all the access to prime properties for advertising and so on. So anyway, lo and behold, you know, we, to get to the day that you were talking about the announcement down at the, uh, at the convention center, uh, we literally got our 60th check as I was walking up the, I got a note from one of my helpers, uh, a guy by the name of Todd McFarland, who was in the comic business. Yeah, actually, Spawn. In Phoenix Spawn. Uh, got a note that he would commit to a million dollars. So that gave us the 60 that we needed. And so that was, that allowed us to make that announcement and move forward with the deal. You know, hearing the story, um, man, a couple things. A, uh, you know, our home area plays a very pivotal point in it is what you're saying. No question. That's, that's like super cool. You know, um, we, we don't have, I mean, you get the Calgary flames, but Oilers for our area, I think, and I, I'm sure I'm going to have some listeners, uh, give me a little flack on that. Cause there are oil, uh, flames fans oh, in town, true. but I mean, Oilers, um, with the success they had in the, the eighties, Gretzky, um, you know the the survival of of the late '90s with with obviously uh, a lot of your work, some of the teams you guys assembled the 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 cup run, and now McDavid and Drysaddle and the group they've assembled um, with a little bit of luck in the drafting, it's been, you know, it's it's really um, it, it really the Oilers do uh, have this ability now with stories like this where they're they're so much bigger than edmonton right like they're they're part of the 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 community the community so much bigger than edmonton i guess what i'm saying let me talk about the fans and i you're exactly right you know and i used to run into fans every well at the games in particular with every other jersey on you could think of and there's many reasons for that many of them had uh, a, a relative or a friend that was drafted by other teams, and and in in at Lloydminster there was a lot of people doing their connection really to the oil patch was through Calgary, and uh, but you know my attitude always was I didn't care if you were a hockey fan first, 
and that's why you're doing what you're doing. And you're out there, you're buying the product. So, sure, I'd, I, I always, uh, I'd prefer they had another jersey on first, <laughs> but I never ever uh, felt, uh, made them feel uncomfortable with other jerseys or, or saying, yeah, I'm a Calgary Flames fan. Well, I got very close to the Flames owners too, and they were trying to survive the same way we were. So we, we were partners in the, in the business in that sense. So as, as long as people were out there buying the product, tickets or whatever, uh, that was good for the business, the NHL business, not just the Oilers business. So I, I had a, a, a much broader view of, you know, and, and in respect of people that had all their biases and preferences to different teams, uh, in the end, I just, I learned very quickly, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, uh, you love the game of hockey. You want to see it survive, and you wanted the best players in the best league in this city. Absolutely. Um, what was the emotions like when you know you get to sit on a, a stage and go, uh, this is happening, this is for real? I mean, you just let us down the story of how many stalls you had, Bettman reaching out to Houston, a deadline put on you, everything, all the cards feel like they're maybe not stacked against you, but you're put to the fire, you're put to the coals for sure. What was the emotion like uh, from the group, yourself, um, to be able to go on the stage and know that you're going to get to to hear some good news? Well, there was two, there's two parts to that. One, there was the dealing with our, our partner owners, who turned out to be 38 of us in the end, and they were in different investment sizes from seven million down to two hundred thousand or whatever. And but I tried to get, treat everybody as as fairly as I could. It wasn't easy at times because they were just in the size of their uh, participation were were different, and some of them wanted to be treated that way, and others didn't really care that much. So that had to be managed, and you know. Many people kind of snickered when they saw us. They said, this will never work. you got twice as many owners as you do players on the team. How can that possibly work? Well, what we did was we uh, had a limited partnership. From that, we picked a, a board of directors of uh, 10 people. And uh, we ran it like a public company, and there was really more accountability in my in my opinion than some of the teams with single owners who have the right to walk in to the uh, dressing room or the or the general manager's office and say trade that guy or go get that guy we were very different we hired people to do those jobs and we let them do those things and we didn't want our owners in any way participating in any of those kinds of decisions so it was run very much like a public company. And so that was on the ownership side. That was how that worked. With the league, obviously, you know, I, I got to know Gary Bettman very, very well. We spent a lot of time together. And, and I tell you, uh, if it wasn't for his patience, when we were, one, trying to do the season ticket thing in 96, and then trying to put an ownership group together in 98, if it hadn't been for his patience and his belief in the Canadian markets, uh, this would have never happened. Be, 
because there were many times we were in a stall, seemingly going nowhere. Yeah. And he could have just said, ah, you know, at this end, going to work. And, you know, there's a lot of bigger cities around with bigger uh, populations and television markets. And uh, But he, he truly believed in the Canadian cities. And does it does it bother you then to see how he's been treated by fans and the like? You know, I, I think he's almost come to enjoy it, to be honest. But, I mean, there wasn't a building he didn't walk into, booze and everything else. Uh, for more than a decade, if not longer than well, for more than a decade, for sure. It was it was a very funny thing, uh, you know. He would, uh, you know, when we were in the own, had been into the ownership, and he would he would come at least to every city once a year, and he'd come here and he w- I'd say Gary, where do you want to sit? I we can go to my suite. I got s- some tickets down in the end zone behind the goal. And we tried that once, and and he kind of liked that. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, so we'd we'd be sitting there, usually a security guy, and uh, you know a lot of times Bill Daly was with him. But uh, the the camera in the in the building would pan around to where we were sitting. And you're right, the booze went up, and you know uh, he just shrugged his shoulders. But anyway, between periods. Uh, I said, let's just go down in the uh, concourse and uh, we'll just hang out there. And you wouldn't believe the people coming up and wanting to shake his hand, get a picture with him, his autograph, thank him for doing what he's doing. And, uh, you know, whenever he came to Edmonton uh, and I say, where do you want to sit? He said, uh, he says, I know you and I feel the same way. I want to be with our fans, so let's sit down there. And he loved that interaction between periods, and he was gracious about it. And uh, and the boo thing, he said, that just goes with the job. You know, I, I make a lot of unpopular decisions, but that's my job. So, uh, you know, very, very interesting guy. Yeah, well, I've, you know, as I've, through the podcast, I've got to, you know, I've got to sit down with guys like Brian Burke and hear his stories. And, and you know, he wants work for him. And, and here's some of the stories about, how he operates and what kind of guy he is. And I'm like, man, that is like super respectable. I think anyone could fall in line with how he uh, operates. And yet, as a fan base, he's got to be one of them. I, I don't know how they all react to the other commissioners of the different leagues, but he doesn't hand out a trophy without getting uh, the heckling and the booze and everything else. It's almost come to the point now where it's it's almost like it's just, part of the tradition to boo Batman when he comes out. First of all, the guy is extremely smart. He's intelligent. And he's got a memory like a trapdoor. Like he just, if uh, anybody ever says anything, he remembers it. And and uh, and if you if you s- stumble at all, he'll remind you. <laughs> and so uh, for that, I, I've got nothing but respect. But, you know, there's another story. Uh, uh, I think about a lot. This was during the lockout year, and uh, you know the fans were really upset because there was no hockey, no NHL hockey. Well, what we'd done in Edmonton, we'd brought the Roadrunners here, the AHL team, so we at least had professional hockey during the lockout year. But Gary went around to different cities, well, to all the cities. And, and he met the media and uh, whoever wanted to talk to him 
as much as he could about where things were, as much as he could say about negotiations, where, which wasn't much. But anyway, we, we put on a Chamber of Commerce uh, breakfast at the Western Hotel and invited him to come and speak. And he, uh, it was, I think there was four or 500 people. It was a sellout. And uh, anyway, he was, he was introduced and got up to speak. Everybody in that room got up and gave him a standing ovation. This got national television coverage because most people couldn't believe what they were seeing, that he, he came to Edmonton and what the heck happened there? And I, I, I tell you, Gary also will never forget that because uh, coming to Edmonton to him, he knew he was with people who, who knew the game uh, wanted the game and uh, appreciated the work that he's doing in, in a sort of a funny way. And uh, so, you know, I've had many occasions like that, but that one, that one stands out for sure. What I wanted to, uh, to ask about was, you know, when you buy the team, when you, you get the group of, uh, the group of owners together, business owners together, and you purchase them, and you're very much like the Green Bay Packers. You're like you're, you're this group of owners instead of one or two, even two. Um, and where the Oilers were at back then, you know, they were a a, scra- a scrappy team, uh, and that's doing them service, right? Like uh, they just they found ways to uh, to win some games, but they weren't very good. And to go into you know '06 and to have the, to have your team, um, make the Cinderella run that they did. What was the, what was that side of it like for you guys? I know as fans, I mean, you could feel that energy. You could feel I was I was on the other side of the, the country at the time playing, mm-hmm. and you could feel the energy, yeah. um, of that, you know, a, a gritty team assembled, just enough skill to put the puck in the net, but. It was a blue-collar team uh, with an all-star defenseman and Pronger, obviously, and a resurgence of Rollison and everything else. But to have bought it, you know, almost a decade earlier where, you know, things were struggling, to have it go to where it was, um, I assume there was a ton of pride in in the group, but I don't know, maybe uh, you could let us in on some of that. Well, along the way, there was a lot of bumps in the road. Uh, We... Because of the way we administered and, and managed the ownerships part of it, we we had a group that was pretty committed to not be losing money. In other words, uh, work with the budget system because the only way we're going to survive long term is that it's financially healthy. And uh, so that was paramount to uh, live within our means just like you do your own life at home and you run your business. So that was the first thing. Uh, we also had a $50 million debt to pay down. So not only did we try not to lose any money, chipping away at that was kind of forefront as well. Along the way, prior to the cup run, we uh, made the conscious decision to do a cash call. And in our agreement, shareholders agreement, if, if we were to do a cash call, 
we could issue more shares at 75 cents on, on par of value. So in other words, uh, if you put in 750,000, you got a million dollars worth of shares. So anyway, in one afternoon at a meeting at the, at the Mayfair Club, we raised over $14 million. All of that went to the debt. So, you know, going along, making a little bit of money, doing that, and then the cup run was significant in uh, financially because, uh, you know, you fill your stadium up for every game as we did and all the other marketing that goes with it. That was that was really meaningful. And uh, by by the time we sold the team, we, we had paid off our bank loan. So, uh, you know, all these things were significant parts to it. So that was the off-ice off side of it. In that lockout, or prior to the lockout, uh, ne the negotiating part with the uh, the PA, uh, we in Edmonton, and I was kind of put in a spot where kind of front and center of of uh, doing the potential lockout for the right reasons. We we had to get revenue sharing. We had to get a salary cap. We had to. We had to do some of the very fundamental things that was going to allow everybody to be competitive in the league and have a chance to win because the league eventually would fall apart and you'd, you'd grind it back to 12 or 15 teams because they're the only ones that had the horsepower to survive while losing yeah. money. So, And this goes back to Bettman's belief about we have to have now coming 32 financially healthy teams if we're going to be a league and go out and sell uh, television contracts and uh, whatever else. And, you know, he, he had a vision about that and he was right. There had been an earlier lockout for half a half season. And then this one, uh, we were just going on all the same principles of we, we need these things. We need revenue sharing. We need salary cap. We need... Uh, we we need predictable expenditures. We you know we we have to know what uh, our costs are, and so uh, as you can imagine, I was I would get numbers of calls a day from media. How's it going? What's happening? And uh, we were very limited in what we could say from for from a team perspective. And one time I crossed the line and I said a little bit more than I was supposed to. And I got fined $10,000 US. What did, you, what did you say? <laughs> you know, I can't remember. It was a little bit related to, it was either revenue sharing or salary cap. But I didn't, I didn't go overboard, but it was, but Gary was trying to get a message across, not only to me, but to all the owners. Like, but anyway, as it worked out, I, I came back to the board. They knew what I had said. They knew what the rules were. And uh, and the group agreed to pick up the tab for that. So <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't personally have to pay it. But there were others that got, uh, I think Pat Quinn got one, uh, fined $100,000 $100, for something he said. But he was more explicit about his view of, was either the salary cap or the uh, revenue yeah. sharing. So anyway... Uh, 
that's you know sort of how, how the, but the uh, the league the, the the members or the team owners and their management would always watch media stuff from coming out of every city and I was always on the, on the edge of this is what we need because you know and I could I could say it or our group could say it because we were just a collection of average Joes when I would go to league meetings I'm sitting around a table most of them were billionaires multi-billionaires in some cases and we had a, a bigger reason you know to fight for the principles of a new deal than some of those guys did although they wanted it just as bad, badly as we did nobody likes losing money so many many quotes that I made got you know uh, kind of around the league and Gary uh, he uh, he, I, I wouldn't say he depended on me, but I think he appreciated that, you know, I was getting information. And that's why when he came to town and got the standing ovation, we had the fans on our side. You know, usually it's they're, they're on the hockey player's side because they're the entertainment. But our fans were educated enough, partly ticket drive, partly because the team went broke once, that financial survival was... Cornerstone to the whole future of the team. So, anyway, when we uh, had the meeting, it was following the Canada Cup, Finland and Canada and Toronto. And we flew to New York that night to have the uh, governor's meeting. And that's when we had the vote to shut the, the league down for the year. And this was in, in a hotel in New York, downtown New York. And the media outside was, they were just everywhere. Like there was cameras and, and like mics. And, and so just as the meeting was wrapping up, okay, the decision was made. And Gary, you know, said the, as usual, I, I will speak to the media, but, you know, you guys have got to exit from here. So the guy that was in charge of uh, public relations at the time, his last name was Brown, he, he comes over and he whispers in my ear, he says, would you, uh, would, you be, would you do something for us? He said, would you be the first guy to go out those doors and meet the media? <laughs> I said, you got, I kind of chuckled. I said, you gotta be kidding. And uh, he said, no, we'd, because uh, by this time, a lot of the media recognized me was not a, a wealthy guy, uh, just there with this huge group of, uh, you know, smaller, mid-sized business people. And uh, I was fighting for all, all these changes for the right reasons. And so, you know, that led to, I can't even remember who the hell the interviews were and what I said, but that was how much they kind of appreciated what we were doing in Edmonton, you know, and I and I guess the other smaller Canadian cities, some of that was going on, but we had that luxury of we were just a bunch of, you know, hockey fans that got together and we needed this to work, you know. So that became very well known throughout the league at that time. So anyway, we you know, and what we had also done in our group, we had made a provision financially 
to stay out two years if we had to. And here's the irony of this. We wanted this deal to be right or don't do it. And as it turned out, many of the wealthier owners, they just kind of gave in with the best deal Gary could bring back at that time because they wanted to, they wanted to operate, you know. And sometimes just because you're billionaire status doesn't mean you don't have pressures from banks and like you got to get cash rolling and uh, so <laughs> this was the irony of it we we were the one the little engine that could we were we were positioned to stay out longer if we had to not wanting to of course but uh, anyway we so we go through the lockout year and then that changed everything in terms of contracts were bought out uh, guys were free agents. And of course, uh, deals were made. Uh, you know, Rolfson came here on a trade for a first-round draft pick. The deal was made for Pekka and and uh, 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 who were we just talking about? Pronger. Pronger. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. No, no, no. <laughs> Too many names flying around. Me. <laughs> and uh, you know. We we barely made the playoffs. Uh, yep, snuck uh, in. And I remember uh, right at the end, it was about the fifth or sixth last game in uh, Phoenix, and we were uh, we were one goal behind, and the clock was ticking down, and uh, we we got a, a stoppage with two seconds left on the clock. In fact, 1.8 or some damn thing. And, and I said, oh, my God, we lose this game. Like, our chances of getting the playoffs here, they just got a little uh, little weaker. Well, anyway, we win the draw and uh, back to Pronger, and he fires the puck and goes in. Now, Gretzky was, Wayne was coaching the Phoenix team then, and he was screaming and hollering. The guy didn't uh, turn the clock on fast. I, I'm I'm convinced to this day that you could not do that in less than two seconds. Because, but anyway, uh, it happened, and we, you know, we got into the playoffs, and by the skin of our teeth. And then the run started, and uh, for everybody that was part of ownership or fans, season ticket holders. This this was bringing back old times, going back to the cup years. So it was a it was a wonderful experience, and uh, that was probably the most fun we had doing it. Too bad we were one period away from winning yeah. the thing, but yeah. uh, you know that's the way it works. Yeah, winning winning is a fun thing to do. Oh no! And no there was a lot of games won in that in that uh, in that run. I mean, well, when, you came within it when we won the sixth game. Four to nothing won. here. I thought, well, we'll just go back there and bring the cup back, sort of, not knowing that this wasn't going to be easy. But yeah, you know, to their credit, they just came up big and made, they made it happen. So, yeah. is that the loudest you ever heard? The absolutely, yeah. Even even in the cup years, yeah, no question. Yeah, it was. Uh, Once you have something, and you lose it, it makes you. Res- Makes you appreciate it more. Yeah, that's what happened at that time. You think we're uh, with the McDavid's of the world, the Dry Sidles, 
maybe we're going to get back there? Well, building a winning team is not easy. And uh, it's, it's interesting. We got, you know, probably two of the best players in the, in the game. But it just shows you it's a team game, and you got to have every part working. You got to have goaltending. You got to have big, tough defense, and you need you need help from your third and fourth lines. And uh, and it's it's a tough, long road, old road to hoe. And you know, credit to our guys in in '06. You know, because you know we had Pronger and and. Uh, Ryan Smith and yep. had a lot of good. Sean Horikoff, yeah, Fernando Pisani had a lot, a lot of playoffs good, of a lot of good players, but we didn't have a McDavid, no, a McDavid and a Drysaddle. So it shows you what a team game it is. So yeah, it turned out good. You know, before I let you out of here, I you know, you buy them, you save them, you make a cup run, and then Daryl Cates walks into the into the into the picture, and. I assume that wasn't an easy decision, regardless of the money. You know, you buy them for um, essentially a hundred million, but I mean, you know, the banks helped out. You found a way to piece it together, yeah. and by the time you sell them, you know, it's almost double that. Uh, money aside, I assume all the blood, sweat, and tears that went well, into it's actually more than double because we really only started out with 60. sixty. Yeah. Fair, fair, yeah. fair. Yes, you are exactly right. Yeah. Um, or maybe it was easier. I don't know. How how hard of a day was it when you knew you were selling and walking away from the team? Well, that was that was difficult because uh, when when Daryl Cates made the offer, you know that we for the most part we were an older group. Like you know, there's a number of guys already at that time in there. When we put the group together, they were seventy years old. Like I, I count them up lately. There's eleven or twelve that aren't even here anymore. Oh wow! And so, uh, you know, time moves on. That offer was made, and what really happened was about half of the guys in the the group said, "You know what? I've had enough. It's time to go." Another half said, "No, I think we should keep it." So we, we, uh, and and this this was a. a this was troubling because you can't please everybody. And of course, we had a retirement amount for the shares, meaning if you wanted out, this is the value of the shares. And we revisited that once a year. And then there was a vote on boosting it up, essentially because of the Cates offer. And that caused more disharmony in the group. So I finally made my mind up. I, like, I, I can't be... Uh, I can't do this forever, and uh, you know the f the f the fact that we had uh, you know that difference of opinion. There were some hard feelings there. I just thought it was was time to move on, you know. And it was it wasn't easy for me because I put my heart and soul into the thing, and you know. But you make decisions and live with them. Well. Heart and soul is is exactly the right statement, Cal. I think um, you know. Uh, I'm, I always say I'm proud of the the area I come from. There were special people, and there's um, some amazing stories. And yours is just another one that you know 
what's the favorite hockey team of the area for the most part? The Edmonton Oilers. Mm-hmm. And when they were at their worst and needed help, it was a guy and a group, um, not only from dang near Hillmont, but within the region yeah. that uh, spearheaded it and then turned the tide. Like that to me is pretty pretty cool. And to have that uh, caught on tape, I, uh, I I don't know. That might be the high point of the podcast. I don't know. I guess we'll see as we, we march. You know, you take time marches on as the podcast marches on. Maybe we'll find something higher than that. But that's, that's a really cool uh, story. I appreciate you letting me in here. I really appreciate you letting me hold you here for as long as you have. I know you have other things going on. If you'll bear with me for about two minutes, I want to ask you two final questions. Um, I usually do the Crude Master Final Five and a shout out to Heath and Tracy McDonald for supporting the podcast, but I'll cut it down to two. That way we can get you out of here and, and on your way home. I always ask guests if they could do this with somebody, sit across the table and pick somebody's brain on their life, their story, some of the lessons learned, etc. Who would you take? If I was... If you were the interviewer and oh, you wanted to have a good interviewee. Who would I take? Oh, my God. Hmm. Can I think about that one for a minute? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, then I'm going to throw it out. Well, this one shouldn't stump you, I hope. But you said you were a ticket holder from the very beginning, the WHA days of the Edmonton Oilers. That means you've got to witness them across their entirety. What's your favorite night in the building? What what has been um, one of the favorite nights you've had um, watching the Edmonton Oilers? I would say that sixth game of the uh, of the Cup run against uh, Carolina. I, I've never heard it louder in there, and the the the. This to people was a dream coming true again, and uh, they they made it known how how good they felt about it, and uh, you know I, the the loudest the the most noise ever I guess shouldn't be the thing that uh, you know, but certainly that's right up there. But I was at all of the four Stanley Cups that were won here. And they were great too. I mean, like you said, nothing like winning and the joy that that brings to people. And you forget all your other troubles in life, uh, you know. And, and that's that's the great thing about uh, sport and what hockey and yeah. other sports bring to people. Absolutely. Now, can I hold you to the fire on somebody you'd interview? <laughs> well, hmm. God, I wish I did. I should have given it to you earlier. Yeah, because I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't want to make a mistake. But, you know, there's, can I do it this way? Yeah, sure. There's. You can do it any way you want. There's, Kat. there's, so many people I've crossed paths with in my life, that I, I hate to even single anybody out because it's, from prime ministers to, uh, you know, to sports, uh, yeah, heroes to business uh, giants and they're uh, I, I just I guess the thing about life that I, I will forever appreciate is the wonderful wonderful people I've met along the way and the, the good friends I've made the people I've dealt with uh, I mean that's that makes a life and uh, of course cannot uh, omit family I, I'm I'm lucky to have the greatest wife in the world. My kids I'm proud of. My 
love my grandkids, and uh, and I know that uh, most people are going to say the same thing. But in my case, uh, there's a special place for them, and uh, and I certainly I try to make them feel like they were every bit of as much a part of this as I was. Well, once again, uh, truly, thank you for letting me come here and uh, and do this with you. Uh, as you've known, as I've called you an awful lot and blown your phone up uh, throughout the years, I appreciate you letting me come and sit here and pick your brain and, and, and hear the story firsthand. You're welcome, and uh, I, I will say from those many phone calls, uh, over the last, uh, where are we going now, 13 years, I uh, I haven't been asked many or a lot of these questions at all, and uh, I uh, apologize for leaving something out because uh, over a 10-year period, there was an awful lot happened, and uh, I know that many people are interested in those stories. But hey, uh, you never know. We can we can do it again. Well, I, I tell you what. There's I say this all the time. There's no way to capture the amount of time that we just did in two hours, less than two hours. It's impossible. Right. So I just appreciate the time you gave me and the insight you've given everyone, including myself. And once again, just getting to hear the story firsthand across from you is, um, you know, I call you my white buffalo because I, I wasn't <laughs> sure if we were ever going to get to do this. And the fact we get to, uh, I'm honored. I really appreciate, once again, you just letting me sit across from you. You're welcome. Hey, folks. Thanks for joining us today. If you just stumbled on the show, please click subscribe. Then scroll to the bottom and rate and leave a review. I promise it helps. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, we will have a new guest sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcast fix. Until next time.